Hello, my name is Spencer Wright, and this is episode 20 of the Waltz Oasis podcast. On this show, I discuss animals and the people who helped create them from the world of Disney. Topics come from the world of animated and live action film, shorts, parks, documentaries, and more. Please follow the podcast on Instagram on my personal page at SpencerWright19070 and the show page at Walt Oasis, where I'll post pictures of subjects discussed. And feel free to email me at waltoasis at gmail.com with any feedback, questions, or episode suggestions. Episode suggestions are always welcome. This week, I'm discussing the True Life Adventure featurette, Prowlers of the Everglades. The 32-minute featurette released on July 23, 1953, and was directed by James Algar and narrated by Winston Hibbler. The installment of the True Life Adventure series tells the story of the Everglades in South Florida through the lives of the animals that live there, including alligators, raccoons, skunks, otters, and birds. And the True Life Adventures are a series of 13 nature films released by Disney between 1948 and 1960. The series consists of seven featurettes, beginning with Seal Island, and six full-length feature films. Eight of them won Academy Awards, and they helped introduce animals and ecosystems to audiences through high-quality cinematography and storytelling. Prowlers of the Everglades shows viewers the Florida Everglades and the wilderness of the southern portion of the state. This is a region partially described by Marjorie Stoneman Douglas as unique in its simplicity. She wrote in The Everglades' River of Grass, in describing the ecosystem, the miracle of the light pours over the green and brown expanse of sawgrass and of water, shining and slow-moving below the grass and water that is the meaning and the central fact of the Everglades of Florida. It is a river of grass. She also wrote, The grass and water together make the river as simple as it is unique. There is no other river like it. Yet within that simplicity, enclosed within the river and bordering and intruding on it from each side, there is a subtlety and diversity, a crowd of changing forms, of thrusting, teeming life. All and all that becomes the region of the Everglades. And this is a subtropical wetland ecosystem spanning 2 million acres from central down into South Florida. And the space includes cypress swamp, wet prairie, and mangroves. And much of the ecosystem is barely above sea level. Therefore, fresh and salt water often mix and mingle. In addition to water, life from temperate climates often mixes with life from the tropics. Animals who live here include the alligator, manatee, gray squirrel, black bear, skunk, raccoon, panther, snake, and more. Plant life includes the hackberry, persimmon, and orchids. And it is a flat landscape interspersed with sawgrass and island of trees and islands of trees. This is a very flat world where a bluff, you know, might be a two foot high mound of dirt. It falls in elevation from 20 feet above sea level at Lake Okeechobee to sea level at the southern tip of the state, flowing almost imperceptibly. The indigenous people who lived there and continue to live there would use dugout canoes to travel through the Everglades, using these canoes with a shallow draft and rounded narrow shape, making it easy to cruise through shallow waters as most of the 
water goes maybe six inches to two feet, um, but often not any deeper. And threats to the region in the era prior to prowlers of the Everglades included logging, canneries, which depleted clam beds, commercial fishing, recreational hunting, and collectors going after rare birds and plants. Real estate and land developers also considered plans to drain the land for commercial use, and oil prospectors wanted the region explored further. Freshwater sources being diverted for use elsewhere also threatened the viability of the region. And many of these threats exist in varying forms today. Fortunately, many saw the beauty of the environment and saw the Everglades as worth saving. Two writers wrote an article for February 1905's Century Magazine regarding the Everglades and other natural wonders. Their mystery is a part of our national inheritance. It has its place among the country's native wonders like Mammoth Cave and Niagara Falls. After all, it is a rather good thing to have a little of Wonderland left. And there was another early supporter of a national park to help protect the region, A.W. Dimmick, who remembered growing up on the west coast of Florida and seeing alligators on every bank, all kinds of blue and white wading birds, waterfowl, um, flocks of birds so big they could block out the sun when they flew by. And he hoped a national park could restore this landscape and return the region to its former glory. And the fact that it was accessible to large swaths of the population who could visit was quite a big plus in terms of creating a national park. The possibility of tourism could help save the region and provide a larger profit and more sustainable income to the people who lived there um, versus farming and hunting. So therefore, tourism into Florida did help spark the development of what eventually became Everglades National Park. Anyone who's in the Skyliner at Walt Disney World, from the Caribbean Beach Resort to Hollywood Studios and back, may recall that the narration in the gondola mentions how Reedy Creek serves as one of the headwaters of the Everglades. The water from Reedy Creek flows southward through Cypress Swamps and into Lake Russell and further down southward. So for a few minutes, I'll talk about the American alligator, which has a strong presence throughout the featurette and is probably the most iconic of the region's species. And the American alligator is a large, long reptile with an armored body and muscular flat tail. And this is a body type they've had for over 150 million years. The skin on their back is armored with bony plates called osteoderms. They have four short legs with five toes on their front legs and four on the back. At the tip of their heads are long rounded snouts with upward facing nostrils. By facing upwards, the nostrils allow them to breathe while their bodies are underwater. And the alligator can be distinguished from a crocodile by its teeth. The alligator's lower teeth are not visible when the mouth is closed, while in the crocodile they are. And these animals have between 74 and 80 teeth at a time, and these are replaced as they wear down. Therefore, an alligator may go through up to 3,000 teeth in a lifetime. The average adult size for a female is about 8 feet and for males about 11 feet, with larger males weighing up to 1,000 pounds. But this is nature, and therefore things can be highly variable. And males reaching 13 to 15 feet in length is not unusual. And the American alligator is found all throughout the southeastern United States, from North Carolina 
and down through Texas and, of course, into South Florida. They live in freshwater, in slow-moving rivers, swamps, marshes, and lakes. And they can tolerate saltwater, but only for very brief periods of time. Alligators are carnivores, and their jaws are capable of cracking a turtle shell. Their diet consists of things like fish, snails, birds, frogs, and small mammals. They use their sharp teeth and jaws to hold prey, which they'll swallow whole. And if prey is too large, they will shake it apart into smaller manageable pieces or spin their bodies rapidly, tearing off pieces they can swallow. Female alligators lay eggs and build nests in which they lay about 35 to 50, but clutches have been found holding up to 90 eggs. The clutches are then covered with vegetation and they hatch about 65 days later. When the mother hears high-pitched noises from the inside of the egg, they know it is time to remove the nesting material, allowing the eggs to hatch and the hatchlings to move forth into the world. About 80% of hatchlings fall victim to birds, raccoons, bobcats, snakes, and even other alligators. However, mothers do what they can to aggressively defend their young, being one of the only reptiles who offer maternal care. While alligators do not hibernate, they will become dormant if the weather becomes cold. They will dig depressions called gator holes along waterways, and they will dig hollows which will fill with water. And tunnels have been found up to 65 feet long, and once they're abandoned by the alligator, they will be used by other animals for a wide variety of purposes, especially for locating water in times of drought. And alligators live to be about 50 years old in the wild. Currently, there are more than 1 million living in the wild in Florida alone, living in every county, and their population is always growing. However, at one point, the American alligator was close to extinction, primarily due to habitat loss and overhunting. Alligators are hunted and raised for their meat and skin. They were listed as an endangered species in 1967 under a law which existed prior to the 1973 Endangered Species Act. Once alligator farms opened and hunting was outlawed, natural populations could rebound. Additional laws have controlled the movements of alligator hides due to poaching, and extinction was a real possibility, but by 1987 they were delisted as an endangered species and they continue to thrive. And alligators are occasionally seen on Walt Disney World property, as the resort is really built at the heart of their core prime habitat and the resort maintains plenty of space for them to thrive. Most reporting, reported sightings I hear tend to be around Seven Seas Lagoon, so the body of water where there's Magic Kingdom, and then uh, the Polynesian, the Contemporary, and the Grand Floridian resorts. I have seen one at Walt Disney World from the monorail, and it was sitting on the banks of a retention pond outside of Magic Kingdom's Tomorrowland. And I also hear of quite a few sightings on the beach right off of the Polynesian Village Resort and Spa. In terms of filming this featurette, the filming was done by cinematographers Alfred and Elma Malatz, a married couple who traveled to Florida in order to film the environment and its inhabitants spending 11 months there. The Malatz, both Alfred and Alma, initially filmed what became the first true-life adventure film. 
uh, the Academy Award-winning Seal Island, released in 1948. And working on the True Life Adventure films, the pair would tr basically travel the entire globe, working on projects including In Beaver Valley, Bear Country, and The African Lion. And they loved working for Walt and the studio, as they would be given a general direction. For example, go to the Everglades and see what you can film, but simply see what you can find. Alfred later said, Walt was great. He just said, just go out and get some good pictures. He never told us how to do it. He gave us independence. And Alfred and Alma had a respect for wildlife, which they felt enhanced their ability to film animals, as animals are incredibly intuitive. Alma said, I think the animals know we aren't predators. When hunters come into an area, the animals stay away for days. And during this time of filming in the early 1950s, diversion of water away from the Everglades to other sources posed a real threat to the ecosystem. But the Malats were hopeful that recent flooding could help bolster the water supply and save it. When not filming, the Malats were constantly studying birds and animals, in particular going to libraries and reading books about animals they were not familiar with. This allowed them to fully understand their subjects and their behavior and get the best footage. Regarding the filming of this featurette, Alfred told reporters, We searched for the best alligator spots for six weeks before we took one foot of film. Then we camouflaged ourselves and the cameras in a cane break and waited. And then once an adequate spot was found, a waiting game began. They monitored alligators for 40 days, waiting for one to catch a fish, while also keeping an eye on other animals and switching to them as needed. Alfred said, Sometimes I guess wrong. Once the blue heron stood there for an hour and a half without moving. Then the minute I turned the camera away, he got the fish. Another six weeks was spent watching a nest of alligators' eggs, waiting for them to hatch. Alfred said he found that all alligators had different personalities and that they got used to their presence. And otters were a favorite animal of the pair, as they derived special pleasure from filming them and their antics. And Alfred said that their success primarily relied on what he called planned luck, sitting in spots where they knew animals may congregate and simply waiting. While some might find this boring, Alma said, It's never dull. There are many exciting dramas in nature if you are alert to them. She also said, we much prefer to work with animals than human actors. This way we don't have to be on the set at nine o'clock. We have no scripts and we can make our own decisions. And Walt and others at the studio very much respected their work and that of other nature photographers, understanding that these were individuals who had a very unique skill set. And quite often, the most nerve-wracking part of the process was waiting to hear back from the studio. So the Malats would send footage, waiting to hear back, to be told that their footage was of a usable quality. In filming in Everglades National Park, Alfred said he never saw anything like it, marveling at the rich horticultural landscape. So while you may have the impression that the ecosystem is a dull swamp, many visitors and scientists are consistently awed by the lush landscape. Botanist John Kunkel Small first came to the Everglades in 1902 to collect plant specimens for the New York Botanical Garden, and in support of a protected park, he described the region as a unique El Dorado. 
1934, Royal Palm State Park was named a conservation area and was thus eligible for federal assistance, beginning efforts to create a national park in earnest. And Everglades National Park was dedicated on December 6, 1947. And this is where all of the filming took place. And there are underwater scenes in the featurette, which was filmed using a glass bottom boat, keeping the Malats out of danger. And they felt that they never, you know, they never felt they were in danger because they never put themselves in a position to be in danger. Quite a bit of the filming was done on boardwalks built on the Anhinga and Tamiami trails. And sometimes the alligators were just below the trail. The Malats took some of the hatchlings back to the studio, and some of the grunts you hear in the film were recorded at the studio and then put in the film. Prowlers of the Everglades was released on July 23, 1953, to a positive reception. One newspaper wrote, It's a good picture, and you don't want to miss it. It carries out Walt Disney's hope of doing something to help preserve America's vanishing wildlife, as well as make a few bucks on the side. Disney is an ardent conservationist, and his earliest wildlife pictures were planned with more an eye to conservation than the cash register. As a result of the success of this and other True Life featurettes, productions about 30 minutes in length, uh, Walt moved on to create full-length features, starting with The Living Desert. Partially, these were initially limited to shorts because it was unclear how they might be received. Plenty of newsreels and other films did show wildlife to audiences at the time, but a full film around the subject with sound and story was a relatively new concept. However, director James Algar believed that the public connected with the featurettes as they depicted animals as they truly lived in the wild. And Prowlers of the Everglades is on Disney+. And if you ever have the opportunity to visit the Everglades, I highly recommend taking the chance. I visited the Everglades once and found the way the animals camouflage into the water and foliage really remarkable. Also, the airboats are a lot of fun to ride. Um, therefore, especially as a post-cruise or pre-cruise excursion out of Fort Lauderdale or Miami, um, it's relatively brief and a very cool experience. You leave the city and then you're immediately in this flat landscape. Now, if you're visiting Walt Disney World or visit regularly, I also highly recommend you visit Gatorland. And this is a fantastic attraction I visited twice in the past five years. Depending on where you are staying on or near Walt Disney World property, it is about a 20 to 30 minute ride to get there, and it's located on a very respectable portion of the Orange Blossom Trail and well worth a visit. There are many animals native to South and Central Florida there, including alligators and a wide variety of snakes and tropical birds. There's other animals as well, like capybara and other species of alligator. There's also a swamp walk, which immerses you in a landscape where you feel like you're going back in time, which in many ways you are. You know, you're going into what is largely an unspoiled swamp. I remember going through that one time and seeing a large amount of snapping turtles. It is a very accessible um, attraction. It's pretty much all flat, either paved or light gravel. So it's close to property. Um, all ages, family types, really everyone is welcome. And I've never heard of anyone having anything but a great experience. Um, again, there's all kinds of birds, alligators in a swamp, uh, many are rescued animals. And this allows you to see many animals native to the Everglades, 
of course, with a focus on the alligator. The staff is friendly, priced more than reasonable, and it's a great way to get a taste of the Everglades and the region's wildlife while you are in central Florida. In a future episode, I will discuss the Florida panther and the Disney Conservation Fund's efforts to support wildlife in the region. Sources for this episode include Wildlife of Everglades National Park by Daniel B. Beard for January 1949's National Geographic magazine, True Life Adventures, a history of Walt Disney's nature documentaries by Christian Moran, Walt's People series edited by DDA Gez, The Everglades River of Grass by Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, Men in the Everglades by Charlton W. Thibault, as well as other books, articles, and websites. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Walt's Oasis. I'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Again, please follow the podcast on Instagram on my personal page at SpencerWright19070 and the show page at Walt Oasis, where I'll post pictures of subjects discussed. And feel free to email me at waltoasis at gmail.com with any feedback, questions, or episode suggestions. Episode suggestions are always welcome. Thank you for listening. 